Welcome to another episode of Resonate Radio. This is part two of the phytochemical diversity of commercial cannabis in the United States. That Cannabis Club episode that we had was almost two hours, so we had to split it up for y'all, make it a little bit more digestible. So we break into the discussion part. There's also quite a bit of talk about our next episode, how we're really excited about next week. However, we have a surprise for you. That episode is already out. We had a panel discussion with PhDs in cannabis research. We had Dr. Miyabe Shields, Dr. Anna Schwabe, Dr. Darren Kaplan, Dr. Cody Peterson, a doctor of pharmacy was also in the building. So take a look at episode six of the Canna Book Club if you already have not done so. Fantastic episode with wonderful people in the cannabis space pushing that conversation. But until that point happens, we're going to get into the discussion here again of the phytochemical diversity of commercial cannabis in the United States. And I think it's Dr. Anna's turn. So, Casey, let's get this rocking and rolling. Another episode of the Canna Book Club, part two, phytochemical diversity of commercial cannabis in the United States. Have a great day, everybody. Dr. Anna, would you take it away with the final discussion? No time for discussion. We're done. <laughs> I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay, so yeah, yeah. all right. Let's, <laughs> let's. Yeah, they. I mean, there was a lot of figures, and I jumped in on a couple of them, which will make my discussion overview kind of go maybe go a little bit faster. Um, so in this, in, uh, in this. Uh, research, they had almost 90,000 samples, which is pretty impressive. Um, and what they found that was that, um, you know, they used different labs, all these states used different laboratories, they were not all going to a single laboratory. Um, but they there were distinct pools of cannabis found within states, even with clones. Environmental factors such as a variation in growing conditions and preparation procedures can cause differences. In morphology and chemotype expression that are measured by testing labs. So they do mention here that um, some of the variation that they're seeing could be because things that are grown in California are not going to turn out the same as things that are grown in Florida. And that's, we, we know that. And even from grow facility to grow facility, different water, different nutrients, you know, whatever, that can all change the chemotype of um, your pro- final product. Um, and, you know, different labs, they use different methodologies. They don't really have a set of standards that everybody follows. So that can also add to the variation. But overall, they did observe similar patterns across regions. Um, and there was a distribution of major terpenes. You know, they found those three clusters. So they had three major uh, chemotypes of THC-dominant cannabis um, that they looked at. So they had the beta-caryophylline and limonene cluster. They had the myrcene and pinene cluster. And then they had the terpinoline and myrcene cluster. So three major clusters that they found. And this is super interesting um, because uh, I don't know if how many of you have looked at uh, Leafly lately, but they do give out the, the dominant um, terpene profile. And Felipe Henry, who is another... Uh, cannabis research type person scientist um, he has been trying to figure out um, 
like dominant terpenes and how, how those might help better derive uh, how to categorize some, the, you know, the, the best, you know, amount of strains that we have better than the whole indica hybrid sativa thing. Although I don't think that's going anywhere anytime soon. For some people, this might be a, a good way to, you know, choose their products or find out what they like and what they don't like. Um, they did say that there was a lot of samples in this analysis, in this in this research that belong to the THC dominant class. Eight of of the the majority of those, eighty seven percent of the samples belong to either cluster one or cluster two. So cluster three was really underrepresented, and cluster three was the terpinoline cluster. Uh, so a future area of study would be to correlate chemotype and genotype directly and determine why other minor cannabinoids have such a low abundance in commercial cannabis. So I, I've been saying this all along. I think that, he, that in addition to genotype, like figuring out do you have exactly what you have or what you think you have, you should also have the chemotype um, so that you can better describe what you're growing, what you have, what you're selling. But I also want to say here that, and, and this goes to our discussion that we had with Avery about um, aromas, right? It, potency doesn't always, or abundance doesn't always equal potency. There could be very, you know, there, there could be terpenes in here that are found in very low quantities that have a serious impact on smell, taste, effect um, that we just haven't found yet because we're not measuring it. We're only measuring those things that are found in 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 the most abundance in the plant and that, that handful of terpenes that we look at there's only about 20 of them and there wasn't even 20 that we looked at in this paper so like we haven't found that thing yet that is um possibly con uh, contributing to the descriptions of the indica hybrid sativa thing that is just so prevalent that people just want to stick to um but i do like the way that they have categorized this and it's nice to see that they cluster fairly well into these three different Clusters, and I do know also that there are some. So Ashley, who does the Dank Hour with us on Tuesdays, her company Rare in Michigan, they they also categorize their strains by terpenes. They have a red, a blue, and a purple, I think, or a red, a yeah, I think it's red, blue, and purple. Um, and based on the colors, you can tell what the dominant terpenes are in those um, in their strains, which is kind of cool. So different people doing different things. Um, of course, there is a, uh, this research suggests that there's a strong genetic component to these profiles um, because we do know that environmental and developmental modulation of terpene profiles is possible, um, but we do know that, um, and it, yeah, but it, because they are clustering, it seems that there is a genetic component. Of course, we need more research. That's always a conclusion of any good paper that you read. And because we have in this data set, they're all, you know, the majority of these samples were THC dominant. Um, this is definitely not a whole diversity of the plant because we are missing so many, uh, you know, we're missing a lot of the CBD dominant. We're missing the balance. We're missing the CBG types. We're missing a whole bunch of stuff here. So this is very THC dominant heavy research because that's mostly what's available on the market. 
Um, they mentioned that many of the genes encoding synthetic uh, think, uh, many of the genes encoding the enzymes that make these terpenes are located on different chromosomes and um, different chromosomes from the ones that make cannabinoids. So cannabinoids and terpenes are not necessarily correlated. Um, and these two aspects of chemical phenotype should be looked at separately. So, um, but um, because they could be independently inherited, similar to other phenotypic traits. Let's see, what else? What's next? Oh, I like this next figure. This is figure 10. Um, basically, they're saying that the high THC types were found mostly to be terioxaline and limonene dominant. Now, this is interesting because I feel like this is not necessarily because THC types have the tendency to produce more terioxaline or limonene. This is a preference of the market. So the things that are on the market are based on consumer preference and what sells, not what um, the plant necessarily produces. These have been, for lack of a better term, weeded out because the market is leaning towards a, a, a preference for things with limonene and caryophylline. The THC and uh, THC CBD balance are myrcene and uh, pinene, and then CBD is um, terpenoline dominant as far as, uh, as what shows up there. So I don't know, like, I, 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 I like this, but I also feel like this is not necessarily driven by what the plant does, but more what the market preference is. So I think more work needs to be done um, as far as this goes, just to figure out, this is all market stuff. I mean, that's what Leafly does. Um, you know, they give information to consumers. Um, all right, so then they talk about an exciting area for academic research product is um, breeding new varieties with higher levels of cannabinoids, of course, like THCV, which is everybody's favorite cannabinoid as far as I understand. At least the four panelists that I was talking to the other week, everybody's favorite cannabinoid was THCV. Um, and then, you know, industry labels for the indica hybrid sativa are poorly or inconsistently aligned with the underlying chemistry. Again, I'm not sure that this is, the, the labels don't align with the data that they looked at. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's not there. It's just not, doesn't come out in this data set. And this is a big data set, but they did not look at any, everything by any stretch of the imagination. And they say because of this, it's unlikely that this widely used commercial labeling system is a reliable indicator of systematic different effects. Um, and the, the, you know, the sedating and the energizing thing also, I've always had a problem with because everybody's experience is a personal thing. And that thing where you say, oh, this is an indica, it's going to make you sleepy. is just as bad as saying, oh, this is wine, it'll make you happy. That's not how that works and that's not everybody's experience. So I feel like that's more of the problem um, with the indicative thing than um, the, the chemical composition that we really don't know anything much about and still scraping the surface. And then they talk about strain names. Um, they're 
they're more consistent from product to product on average than would be expected by chance, but they did observe a wide range of consistencies for all strain names. So some of them only like 60% of the same strain went in the same cluster. We do know that there are problems with labeling and that they may or may not be what the, what the name on the package is. Uh, and then they go on to say that these results indicate that while strain names may be a better marker of product chemistry than the indicates to the hybrid category labels, they're far from ideal. But again, I feel like that's, this is still a mess and I'm not, and, and this is just pointing out the mess, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Oh yeah, we talked about this. So cluster three samples, the high terpenoline mercine um, displayed an overrepresentation of sativa, or did it? Um, they seem to think it did, but maybe that's what makes the sativa the sativa. I don't know. Also, we have a hell of a lot of hybrids in this data set, and the overtime hybridization and a lack of standard standardized naming conventions may have uh, decorrelated chemotactic markers from the linguistic labels used by cultivators. So we could combine chemotype and genotypic data to try and figure out what, uh, how to label these things. And then they go on to talk about the entourage effect. Um, there was a thing back at the beginning that I found, I thought it was kind of contradictory. They said that um, there's limited suggestive evidence for such an effect, including improved patient outcomes in those who use whole plant extracts versus synthetic THC. For example, THC alone manufacturing products such as Marinol may produce unpleasant effects. I feel like that contradicts saying that there is no effect or there has been limited evidence for such an effect, but people don't like the synthetic THC. I don't know. I feel like that was contradictory. I don't know. They're kind of all over the place with this one. Anyway, this study can serve as a guide for future research, as all good studies do. Uh, studies seeking to falsify claims about the psychoactive and medical effects of different cannabis types should test chemical ratios that match those found commercially. So this kind of gets at that uh, idea of if you want to see how something works, then you need to kind of uh, mimic what's found in nature. So this kind of study could potentially give some good information to companies seeking to provide specific effects by by mimicking nature and making like a special formula formulation with like a measured level of this and that. Yeah, so we want to test formulations designed to match ratios that people choose to consume under quote unquote ecological conditions. I feel like this next paragraph is kind of their limitations. So they have an aggregation of lab data from different states, obviously different labs. They didn't do any genotyping because they didn't have access to it or the growing conditions. So they really have no idea how different these samples were genetically or in growing conditions. So that's a pretty big limitation on this study. Um, another one is that one or more compounds that were not consistently measured in each region is an important chemotactic marker. Another one is that this data set did not include variations found in hemp. They do say, however, that a lot, a lot, how many did they say? Um, most, most of the CBD types that were uh, in this data set would not have legally passed as hemp. So for anybody listening who cares, about 8% CBD is your, your threshold of how high you can get your CBD up before you inch across that line 
that's going to make your hemp non-compliant. Corey, this is the one I wanted to ask you about because I know you have cultivation experience outside of cannabis. They say, in contrast to other widely used but federally regulated plants, e.g. corn and other crops, there are no enforced rules for the naming of cannabis varieties. I was under the assumption that there aren't rules for naming cannabis or for naming varieties like tulips and roses. You could name it like Anna's morning sunrise if you wanted to. It doesn't matter what you made across. It would be like Anna's sunrise in you know single quotes, and then it would, and then maybe after that it would say what you crossed to get that cultivar name. So I, I think they're like really hard. They're pushing this. There needs to be rules for naming. I don't think there does. Corey, do you know about how they go about naming cultivars? I think your tulips um, reference was a really good one. I know with roses, it's the same thing. You could, you know, Dr. Corey and Molly's tulips or roses variety, and you don't really have to say how you got to it or anything. There isn't really any rules in that sort of way. I can understand why the suggestion is here for this, I think, for cannabis particularly, to possibly just kind of help out with things. But I mean, I okay. I, I question, yeah, I, I have a few different questions surrounding that whole suggestion, to be honest. Okay, that's what I thought, because I really thought like you can pretty much name it whatever you want. But if you want to dive deep into whatever that cultivar is, like, you know, black velvet, um, if you want to know what black velvet is, you can go into the registration and find out the lineage of black velvet. Just like you can, and some like Seedfinder does that with cannabis. You can go back and for a lot of the strains that they have on there, you can actually look at the um, at the lineage of where it came from. I don't know how accurate that is or anything like that, but I mean, it's there's there's some information out there, and I feel like. I don't think there needs to be a, an enforceable naming standard for cannabis. I think you should be allowed to name whatever the hell you want. Um, but I do think there should be some sort of registration and, and paper trail of what it is and where it came from. Anyway, so yeah, this is the last little pa I think paragraph. I, I um, just real quick, I wanted sorry, to mention. Yeah, I think is I think like I don't know, kind of going to the naming thing. I just think with so many different like chemical expressions i guess might be the best way to put it that you know having rules behind it uh might help out but i think that having just like a general naming convention might be a little bit dangerous just due to the fact that we don't know what we don't know yet <laughs> there's so many different chemicals and terpenes cannabinoids mm -hmm. etc that we have not identified in the plant yet and so i think to try and kind of restrict us early and in, in something that we really don't know a lot about might be counterintuitive to the the whole market but um, i don't know i digress on that that might be opening up a rabbit hole of different discussions than what we're doing right now <laughs> yeah all right so their big um their big punch at the end is we have shown that in the u.s multiple distinct chemotypes of commercial cannabis are reliably present across regions reliably i don't know about that but yeah they've got some good clustering going on so but again it's with terpenes and um you know cbd and thc content and we know there's a lot more to this plant than that and that we are not measuring everything and that potentially there are things in this plant that pack more of a punch than we realize that may be have significant um impact on 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 effects and and that kind of thing, which we don't know. So I don't know. Like, I don't know about that then. But then due to the chemical complexity of these products, 
which may contain dozens of pharmacological, dozens, maybe more pharmacologically active compounds with potentially psychoactive or medicinal effects. We believe it is in the public interest to devise a classification system and naming conventions that reflect true taxonomic diversity in this plant. Eh, I kind of disagree with that. Um, it's like, eh, we could yeah. change everything that we already are. When we have a classification system in place, um, people seem to do all right with it. I don't know that turning it all on its ear and, and doing a whole new thing is necessary. Um, it might be a good addition, like a next level sort of thing. Um, and if you guys are following me on any of my platforms, um, I'll go into this in, later in the week on my social media takeover of uh, Curious About Cannabis. Um, but anyway, the general approach that they use can serve as a basic guide for cannabis product segmentation and classification rooted in uh, product chemistry, which is true. Consumer-facing labeling should be grounded in such an approach so that consumers can be guided to products reliably, different sensory and psychoactive attributes. Again, I feel like they're missing a whole piece of this puzzle by not doing a complete chemotypic profile or they, they are limited in what the labs were testing. They're using like a post hoc lab data set. It wasn't, we want to measure these things and gather the data that way. It's like, here's the data that we have. Let's look at what we got. Um, and just to summarize, like I hate that attaching effects to indica being sedating and sativa being uplifting. They are two different categories and what that means to any consumer is exactly what it means to them. It's personal and it's not the same for everybody. So I don't like that. Again, abundance is not the same as potency. And then again with the the emphasis on the naming um, system, I again I don't agree with that and that they say that that's how corn and stuff is named. I don't think that that's true. I but wanted again, to I don't I want to mention how they do that. It may be it, I don't know. I'm getting the feeling just kind of on that paragraph that it's then I know this might be where the I know I love to read the conflict of interest, right? Uh, when it comes to this, but it's almost saying that, you know, they they took Leafly's data and it's basically saying that this naming system that we've come up with doesn't work and we need to come up with a new one. So it's almost like Leafly is pushing, you know, their own way of, you know, I don't know, maybe they're going to revamp the website in six months and they're going to come up with a different naming convention and they're just prepping everybody right now <laughs> for what's coming next. But, <laughs> you know, that's kind of one of the things where it's like they, they already did that, you know, not Leafly in particular, but just as an industry in general, we've already done this. You know, we've forced ourselves into a naming convention of indica, sativa, and hybrid, and look where we are now. It doesn't reflect what is actually going on. So I think that's kind of what they're well, hitting on this. It, the... it doesn't reflect what we know, what we, we haven't found it out yet. I mean, the science isn't in. I mean, they, we're not done yet. We're just scratching the surface of what we know about this plant. And for them to say, well, we didn't find it, it's obviously it's not a thing. Like, I feel like that's so disingenuous and so um, a little bit overstated, um, especially when you're only taking, how many terpenes did they look at? 10 out of 120, 150 terpenes that are present or could be present. I feel like that is a very um, overstated opinion. <laughs> um, and same thing with THC and CBD. Yeah, they're in abundance maybe that's not the thing that we should be looking at. Maybe it's the thing 
that are in small quantities is a thing that we should be looking at, you know? THCV, um, we know that THCP and CDB, CBDP are at 30 times less potent than THC and CBD. I just don't, I, I mean, I just don't think that they can make that conclusion by only looking at a handful of stuff. I mean, we've got so many consumers that say they can tell the difference, that they're, the broad categories are helpful, that they do like Indicas, they don't like Tevas, and they know this because they've tried them, um, or I take sativas during the day and I do indicas at night or vice versa or you know whatever the case may be we've got consumers that say they can tell the difference sometimes it's that that they're not labeled right but there is a difference there's something there's two different things going on so I don't like that and I think one of the coolest things about the industry is like the name I mean some people I'm sure think they're totally ridiculous but they're also an expression of creativity of the breeder who has poured their heart and soul into creating a product that's amazing and then getting to name it at the end is kind of like the icing on the cake. You know what I mean? Like, you get to name your creation. If they took that away and said, you have to name it this, that, and the other based on these naming conventions, it's like, fuck you. I don't want to name it that. It kind of takes some of the fun out of it to me anyway i'm not a, i'm not necessarily a breeder so i don't know but yeah i mean i like i mean for me i you know not a breeder i get everything at the end of it but i mean it's fun to you know kind of seek out the legends of some of them as well um you know like franco's lemon cheese for example it has a wonderful story behind it there's a reason why it, it's named that and uh, i think it, it resonates with people as well so uh, yeah, I definitely yeah. think that there's something to that, to say the least. Um, you know, like Jack Herrera. Um, how the hell do we pass on Jack Herrera's story without, you know, having to smoke Jack Herrera? <laughs> I think that's a huge aspect um, of it. So yeah, no, I definitely agree. Yeah, like the whole Chem Dog line, Chem 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 Dog, Chem Dog ninety one, Chem Dog D, Chem Dog four. Like why? Why? Well, if you know the story, it's actually kind of cool. Yeah, the one in Oregon, yeah. or the real, the actual, the one, not the the marketed one. But yeah, there's definitely stories behind all. Like I said, yeah, no, I agree. Like I Doug's Baron. Like if you, unless you're in the cannabis industry, you're gonna be like, okay, first, who the fuck is Doug? Because that's what I said. And <laughs> <laughs> and what the hell is a Baron? <laughs> oh gosh. Like there's actually quite a few Doug's strains, right? It's Doug's like uh I can't well fucking now I can't remember any of them, but there's quite a few of Doug's strains and they're called Doug's this and Doug's that and it's like who the fuck is Doug? Is this some guy like that lived down the street from a, a lab and just turned in his samples and they called it Doug's this and Doug's that? No, Doug was yeah. So anyway, but yeah, I mean, so this is the cool thing about a preprint. Like, this has not gone through the peer review process. We are literally peer reviewing it right now, saying, you know what? You might not want to overstate this uh, conclusion because I don't agree with it. Yep. This is Molly. I honestly, like, wish there was more of a standardized, um, like, procedure for all of this because, like, we're right now at the rise of, like, reviewers and people who call themselves cannabis sommelier and just, you know, people who are supposed to give product reviews and like when we can't even rely on the fact that like you know strain one from here and strain one from there is not even the same thing and then even with our legal market they get to do this like exchange um with the uh black market so sometimes they get the genetics but then 
there's no actual proof that what they're saying on the label is what the genetic is because when they're doing that exchange a lot of the times they rely on the good word of that person mm -hmm. so to me that i think is a like also a big one um it's really hard to kind of um hard to like take those reviews seriously because everything is so individual and like there is really no you know there's no one way to determine all of these little nuances. So at least like, I'm really glad that in this paper, they specifically say like, you know, studies like this, very few studies like this, not enough studies like this are non-existent at all. And so like, you know, I at least, you know, really like that they kind of alluded to the fact that there obviously needs to be a lot more research done, but also like kind of specified, um, which, I guess data points are lacking um and also considering the previous experience of the people who are on those trials or um studies because there's a lot of us who've been smoking for years and i feel like the way it you know affects us and the way it affects people who have never smoked is so different and there's just like so many of these little things um involved as well and it's just mind-blowing how much more we still have to uh, discover about this plant it's pretty cool I don't know that we'll ever figure it out. Um, you know, even like wine sommeliers and beer cicerones and whatnot, like they can do their reviews um, all the way to the bank, but it doesn't mean that you have the same experience that they do. Like a cicerone might really enjoy IPAs and tell you, oh, the body and the flavor and the this and the that. But if you don't like IPAs, you're not going to like it. You're not going to have that same experience and you're not going to agree with their review that it's just out of this world. You're going to be like, that's an IPA. That's disgusting. And that'll be the end of that story. So I feel like that's the case with a lot of reviews of just about anything, whether it be food, wine, beer, whatever the case may be. If you don't enjoy that category of food, beer, or wine, you're not going to agree with their review. I mean, you might be able to smell notes of chocolate, but if it fucks you up or, you know, makes you feel like your skin's crawling or something like you're, you're just not going to enjoy it. So I feel like that's the same with any review of any product it, because everything is about perception and your own personal choices. So I don't know. That's the way I feel about it. Well, I mean, they're helpful. Yeah, I feel like everyone kind of has their own like perspective and we all come from different flavor backgrounds and there's a lot. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. We might not even taste the same thing. Who knows? <laughs> I honestly sometimes feel like that's actually the case. <laughs> yeah, or like how some people like are disgusted by cilantro. I think it's great. <laughs> Well, I was going to say the same thing. That's a genetic thing, though. Yeah, but, I mean, maybe that's that could have something to do with it. We well, of course. My kid does not like cilantro at all. Like, he thinks it tastes like burnt hair and soap. I don't get it. But <laughs> obviously, he's got a thing, and he, he, and he can taste the tiniest, littlest bit of cilantro in anything and it ruins yeah. the whole everything for him he's like i can't i want to eat this you know wine chicken and i can't <laughs> <laughs> so it's like a really big thing and, and another one is um 
people who can't like you know people who really cannot stand diet soda which i am one of them also can't stand things like tonic water with that bitter taste in Mm -hmm. it yeah. Those two things go hand in hand. That's also a genetic thing, I think. Um, but yeah, like you can like the hell out of diet soda and you can tell me like diet Pepsi is so good. Just try it. There's nothing you can do that will make me n- not spit it in your face. Like it's just it, my, I, I, can't, I can't, I can't, it's gross. It's so gross. Yeah, I agree. I think ultimately like our body also a lot of the times can sort of tell us if something is good for us or not. Um, I definitely... Like, I'm coming from a place where, like, you know, stuff that I've tried before is very limited. It's, like, very basic in terms of vegetables. And then when I, you know, came to North America, there was a lot of foods where I can't even chew it because it's already causing my body a certain reaction. And it's just like, nope. And the same thing with cannabis. There are certain, um, I, I, my assumption is that it's the terpenes, but there are certain ones that I'm, like, very allergic to. Whereas um, as soon as I bust it and I smell it and it feels like my nose is, like, being, like, you know, prickled inside with a needle. Um, and it's very interesting because I know it's not like that for everybody. Um, and that's why when people start making suggestions like, oh, you should try like sativa, blah, blah, blah for the daytime. And I'm just like, no, because I know that most of the sativa dominant strains that are out there seem to have this one thing in common for me that causes this allergic reaction. And it not only like prickles my nose, my eyes get puffy and like I'm itchy and it's just like overall not a great experience. But I also don't expect that to happen to every single person out there. And with the way a lot of people kind of talk about their experiences with cannabis is as if it's for everybody. Like I see people uh, on a lot of social media and the comments like giving each other advice and saying, oh yeah, you have anxiety, you should try um, sativa is gonna like uplift your mood and like indica is gonna make you fall asleep and depressed don't try that and it's just like totally not correct uh, because it's very individual and also not all of us have like access to choosing from different strains not all of the places that say yes the strains are actually reliable that those are different things definitely not about places who've had the same product just labeled differently and sold differently too um it's it's very interesting because <laughs> there's so many little things in it and of course like i'm hoping that there would be like more of like a generalized idea so you can kind of direct people that way or maybe those dna tests will be like more common and people will try to kind of look into their preferences a bit more but I think like we have like one maybe producer right now out there who is like putting a list of all of the cannabinoids that could possibly be tested for and all of the terpenes that they could be tested for. And like they're just like their entire back of their packaging is like a table sheet of different um, parameters. So it's like pretty interesting that at least like that kind of information is being available, but it's also very, very limited to us. That's why, you know, very hard to ask people, oh, what's your favorite terpene? Because most of them don't really know if what they're smoking has it or if they've had it before people are still kind of getting used to the city indica, i think and now for them to find out that like you know thc doesn't have to be the highest and all those little things um maybe can be like a lot for an average consumer who like smokes occasionally and a favorite terpene just saying like what's your favorite terpene your favorite terpene in combination with another terpene could totally ruin your favorite terpene you have a whole different experience a whole different smell a whole different flavor like when we talked to avery he was saying like these things in combination like it's not like this plus this equals that it's like this plus this equals something totally different 
and just a drop of something else can totally change the experience. And that was part of the thing about the perfume um, industry that he was talking about, right? So it's not even as simple as what's your favorite terpene or I don't like this terpene. I mean, yes, if you're allergic to a specific terpene and you can nail that down, probably stay away from that terpene. But uh, as far as like, what's your favorite terpene it could be what's your favorite combination of terpenes and in what proportions because that changes things as well like just every time these are things that keep me up at night it's just so incredibly complex Mm, that's a whole other rabbit hole (laughs) yes it is and i'm sorry follow me on my social media i'll give you all the answers please do or here for it yeah like honestly like there's still so much more to cover and uh you know that's why it's great to have people like you so you can actually educate people and people actually listen to you because <laughs> you know you're uh, a scientist and this is something that um i think maybe weren't as popularized before and that's why you know um, i'm excited about uh, dr mia becoming on as well because they're actually doing quite a bit of the education out there for people who are not really in the cannabis industry and they're just kind of you know passing by type of thing um and that's why it's really cool seeing a more um more verified information you know being presented out there because they talk a lot about like the chemical reactions in our body and stuff and i find that's very interesting because we all love it and we all smoke it but we don't really necessarily 100 percent understand how it really affects us we just kind of go from you know whatever we feel or we think we feel i think we just shy away from it a lot and honestly people would rather spend you know 10 minutes on facebook believing whatever claim it is um and uh i think there's a lot of value on you know reading these papers because um i now sort of have came across a few of them as part of my research on other topics and i actually sat down and read through it because now i know how to read them so at least i think the big takeaway for people would be from these sessions is like even learning how to read the paper um because it definitely you know does have a lot of value and you can learn so much more and then when people kind of throw these oh well where is your source you can actually be like yeah this is my source it's an actual paper and uh, here you go you can read it as well um you know at least you can come back with something uh, in a lot of the cases as well which i think again also has a lot of value and just brings our credibility as an industry as a whole a bit higher up there and you know not that just we came out came up with things because people have been doing them for 30 years but we never actually did any kind of you know study on it like it's okay to read news articles like it's okay to read um you know marijuana moment or hemp or hemp news daily or whatever the case like it's okay to read those articles a lot of times they do summarize the articles very well but click on the link and read the paper you know um sometimes the reporters get it wrong or they kind of you know put a little twist on it or whatever or they don't say it quite right i know i've been a a, uh a victim of that myself where the reporter kind of got it wrong and i'm just like ah oh that's not what i did but what are you gonna do so um but yeah like people should know like those little hyperlinks that go to the paper you can click on that and you can read the paper especially if you have been taught how to read one and molly as you said like since you started reading them it's getting easier right Oh, yeah. I read the abstract and focus on the last two sentences as you talk. <laughs> and then if I want to know more, then of course, like I can go through it and kind of like find the information how they did it and 
all the little things but yeah like exactly that's the thing when uh, people report um they're trained to shorten all the information how do i know that actually wasn't during awesome program when i was in college and uh, that was a big part of our job we had to get like i don't know three page script and then make it into like a half a page but trying to like uh, make it shorter but still keep all the information uh, and media a lot of the times is targeted towards getting clicks so sometimes the actual headline will not be reflecting the uh, point of the whole article and only if you read through it um, and don't skim through it then you can actually get to the point that they're trying to make but as we know we're a lot of the times too lazy like there was a recent thing where everybody started posting lego said they're switching to hand plastic by 2030 but there was no actual official statement or anything like that all of these articles literally citing each other <laughs> i went on like a rabbit hole of the oh my god through, and it's just like the closest i got to it was that lego made a statement uh like 10 years ago saying that they will uh, be committed towards switching to a sustainable um alternative by 2030 they have never mentioned that it would be hemp plastic and people out there celebrating that lego is going to be made from hemp plastic by 2030 but they never actually stated that so we as consumers of information i think should sometimes you know not be lazy and do our own diligence and double check it especially not be, yeah, not be so gullible oh yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> i mean so my cousin is he he has this thing called future crunch and it's it's science communication but one of the things he talks about is just like your diet what you consume online is also part of your diet and you can choose what you're feeding yourself um and some people are hooked on junk which is you know stuff that's geared towards clicks sensationalized headlines and they just don't go beyond that you know like enrich your diet enrich what you consume enrich make sure that what you're consuming has has value has sustenance has merit and 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 credibility um, stop clicking on this like fast shit. This fat is it's fast food. It's fast content um, because it's not good for you. And oh my god, is this apparent in the U.S. right now? Right? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. My cousin's smart too. Friends in town. <laughs> He's also a geneticist. Oh. But, bio, but bioinformatics and genomics and stuff like that. Yeah, just just that, you know, just, just that. that. <laughs> it's so funny. Like he went into cancer research, which is where I wanted to go because I wanted to make a million dollars, and I went into plant conservation genetics, which is where he wanted to go because he loves plants and conservation. And we totally ended up like going on each other's career paths. So we're like totally jealous of each other, but we're both really really good at what we do. <laughs> Well, we are hitting almost the two-hour mark. Jesus Christ. Look at how time flies. Um, I do have to step out. And, I mean, I don't know if y'all are trying to continue the conversation, but I think it's a good time to wrap up. Yep, I was just going to say I'm, we should close I'm up. good to go. Like, I'm super excited about next week um, with with the discussion about how research becomes a piece of paper or a digital piece of paper yes or a digital piece of paper for your consumption needs 
I'm excited as well. I'm hoping to also add to the guests in there. I have a couple of feelers out, and hopefully we should be able to be hearing from at least one of our Canadian cannabis research superstars. So I'm excited to bring them to the table. That would be awesome. Yeah, this is exciting discussion. I can't wait to get through there. And there you have it, another episode of the Cannab Book Club, part two of the phytochemical diversity of commercial cannabis in the United States. Thank you so much for listening all the way through. It is a busy time for Resonate Radio. I have a lot of podcasts to edit for everybody, so I'm excited to get those out. It's December, so holiday time for many, many people around the world. I hope that you set time aside to enjoy the multitude of episodes that we have coming through. Again, as you heard at the end of that episode, episode six, where we have our panel discussion of the Canna Book Club, where we are asking a PhD about cannabis research is live. If you have not had the opportunity to check that episode, go and do that now. Along with the other now 17 episodes here at Resonate Radio. We really appreciate it. You can stay up to date with the latest on Instagram at Team Resonate. And if you want to follow along with the latest live shows that we have going, again, you can follow us on YouTube or Twitch, Resonate Media. Every week we have new shows coming on through and then they are released through here on the podcast at Resonate Radio. We appreciate the follows, the downloads, and the reviews. If you're on the Apple podcast, please leave a review it is a giant help again much love from all of us here at resonate radio and we'll see you in the next episode everybody have a fantastic week